1: Thank you for listening, thank you for subscribing and of course thank you for leaving us iTunes reviews. If you want to get involved with any banter or chat, follow us on Twitter, I'm at JBeardmore. this podcast is at the Rugby Dungeon and of course there is the world's biggest rugby podcast, the Egg Chases Rugby Podcast, me, Tim and Phil every week at Rugby Podcast. Uh, today's guest is Gareth Delve, I've been wanting to talk to Gareth for ages because he's got such a wide range of experience uh, playing at Gloucester, Bath. Uh, Melbourne Rebels played in Japan and lately in in the Ospreys. Really fascinating guy. Uh, so here we go. This is my interview with Gareth Delf. Hope you enjoy it. What are you up to
2: now? Uh, so at the moment, it's um, been a bit of a strange old year. Mm. Uh, obviously finished up Ospreys last year in May, so been finishing off my masters at uni. So, got a dissertation, um, a couple of exams coming up next uh, next month, yeah. and I've been doing a, like a business management placement. Oh, excellent. That's uh, at actually, yeah, so insurance. So trying to get a bit of real-world uh, experience and, um, yeah,
1: sort my ankle out. Is, is that why you left the Ospreys, actually?
2: Yeah, yeah, so that's what happened. I, um, I did ankle ligaments um, and sort of eventually got it fixed up uh, last October. So about sort of six months post-operation um, and sort of still... Trying to get back running, really. So it's oh, it's wow. been a bit of a long haul but uh, yeah, sort of starting to to move a bit more freely now, and it's it's good, obviously, with a with a little one spreading yeah. all around the place. So uh, yeah, working starting to keep up,
1: working on on your agility.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's gonna be beaten at the moment for for pace and uh, agility. <laughs> so yeah uh, nothing new.
1: So what exactly is the issue with the with the ankle? Is was it ligaments? Have you broken it? Why, why is it taking so long to heal? Um, it
2: was just a, a real nightmare, to be honest. I did ligaments, uh, came down in a line-out and, and tore the ligaments, oh. and then uh, just landed on someone's foot, blew them out. Um, and it's just taken a, a bloody age, and I didn't end up getting the operation till 10 months um, post-injury. So that didn't help. And then, uh, yeah, eventually I had to go and get it sort of fixed up mm. myself. And, um, yeah, yeah, I suppose... Just on the on the way back now. So it was sort of three months on crutches and uh yeah, six months, six to twelve months hopefully until I can sort of see where it is. But uh yeah, it's been a long old uh long old haul. Yeah, well,
1: Again, At least you have not wasted wasted your time in the in, in the meantime, eh?
2: No, that's it, mate. Yeah, it's been good. I think uh, you know, the PlayStation's gone to one side <laughs> since the little one got born and uh you know, it would be nice to have a couple of letters behind my name come the end of this summer and uh Get the masters done
1: see i i've remember, i have seen you play since I can remember it really i was looking up, looking you up on, on wikipedia you you're only thir- thirty four so are we likely to see you back in a rugby shirt at any time
2: i don't know mate it's a it's a tough one i think it's it's, it's looking unlikely if i'm honest mate it's um it's something i haven't really made a final decision on because yeah. uh i've been sort of waiting to see how the ankle healed up and if I felt great, then, you know, there'd be no reason not to look to carry on. But yeah. um, it's sort of 18 months now, really, since I, I did the injury um, yeah. and just time dragging on. The game's moving on. It's it's one of those where, I don't know, It's uh, there's not too many clubs, you know, I'm, I'm too keen to, to play for either. So, you know, obviously I've got an affinity with uh, a few of my old clubs, but I don't know, everything would have to be right. And, and of course, the ankle would have to be 100% for me to get back into it. And it's it's not looking too likely at the moment.
1: Would you ever look at playing just as, you know, just as recreation or for you, is it when you're involved, you're involved and you want to be at the highest level you can?
2: I think it has been that, you know, I've got to be honest, um, you know, most of the enjoyment I was getting through my career, you know, as a back rower, the nature of the game, you're, you're busting yourself up and you're smashing other people about, mm. you know, it's a tough old game, you know, there's there's obviously some games you enjoy and, and you're right in the middle of it, and and you got that feeling for it. But I think what I always loved was, you know, sort of that feeling of being close to my teammates, having that that camaraderie and that bond, Mm. and you'd run through a brick wall for them. So I think doing that at a different level, and and I suppose, you know, a lot of my mates and a lot of the guys I I spent a lot of my career with are are sort of finishing up. Yeah. I think it's it's difficult to get back to that level of enjoyment, you know, without having that friendship around it. So... (laughs) Potentially, if it was if it was that um, that bond was there and it was the team that I had something that uh, you know I cared about, then it'd be worth going around or you know we playing somewhere nice and warm. But I always hated playing in the heat, mate. To be honest, so you really? uh, even some of these Bermuda things, you know, and I, I <laughs> bloody sweat like a beast. So I'd be there melting away and, and not enjoying it at all. So yeah, it, you know, maybe uh, those days are gone.
1: Just on what you said then, I don't think it matters what level of rugby, rugby you play. You do get a certain age, and I reckon it's about 29. And then overnight, you feel like one of the older guys, guys in, in the change room. Come about 31, half, half your mates have retired.
2: Yeah, yeah, and, and it was strange. I think it probably happened to me, you know, after my, my second year at the Rebels, and, you know, I had some great mates all the way through at the Rebels. But, you know, the likes of Sterling Mortlock, you know, Michael Lippmann, you know those guys, Julian Huxley. They moved on. Mark Gerard moved on, and and not some George, of them retired. Some they? of them went to play elsewhere. And they were probably my, you know, my really close mates in the team. Mm-hmm. Had some great mates within the club, but they were younger. Yeah. So then the following year, you're going out for a pint with the lads, and they're 22, 23, and it's it's just a different world, mate. It's, you know, it's not. Uh, you know, they're fantastic guys, and and we're really close, but you know, it's just different stages of your life. So. I think that was a, a bit of a turning point, and um, you know, the more you think about it, the I, I, more I reflect across my whole career. It was, it was always those bonds and, and friendships that, you know, sort of kept me hungry. So, looking at the, the match day programme, I remember when 1982 with the with the youngsters and, and the kiddies, and now you see lads <laughs> running around. You know, obviously Keelan Giles was coming through last year at the Ospreys, and I think. You know, it's pretty much 98 or 99. Oh,
1: so. It's terrifying when you read the dates of birth. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, that's it. When you read a date of birth and you realize that you had a Beano from the same year, that's when you feel really old.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So, that's it. Everything's moved on, mate, you know, and all the kids have just got their heads in their uh, their smartphones now, swiping around on Tinder. So it's, uh,
1: yeah, <laughs> not for me. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah that, that, that's when you know you're really, really old. Um, <laughs> yeah let's just stick with the rebels a second because I, I was going to ask you about them a little bit later on but as we're there we'll stick with it now um that was a that was a strange team wasn't it because there was nothing there before you arrived and then you arrived was it like you danny cipriani were the first year of of their professional existence is that right
2: yeah yeah that's right yeah you were also sort of there for the uh, you know for the beginning yep they had been the um the arc it was called at the time mm hmm um, I think ARC or NRC. So they'd had like a national comp that they were looking to put in between the shoot shield and super rugby yeah. just to sort of bridge the gap and increase awareness across Australia. So Melbourne had had a team that came down, did really well. I think David Croft was part of that, Matt Cobain, and you know, had some really good guys that had put a bit of a bedrock down in Melbourne. But then they hadn't got the license when the force got it. So, you know, when we came in 2011, got down there 2010. It was a brand new team and, you know, just a great opportunity because, you superb sport in the city. Yeah. We had, you know, the run of everything. We had, you know, fantastic support. Rod McQueen obviously involved, you know, at the coaching level. And, you know, Harold Mitchell, who's a, you know, massive advertising giant in the city. Good mates with, you know, with the Packers and everyone else down there. So, you know, it was just a huge opportunity. And because it was brand new, you know, everyone just came together and, you know, created a really tight bond from the start. Uh,
1: just give me a bit of background about the Rebels, because obviously I've seen them play. I didn't, I didn't even realise this until I was listening to an episode of the Green and Gold podcast. Uh, they're, yeah, yeah. They're, they're privately owned, yeah?
2: The Rebels. Yeah, they are again now. So initially when we started, we were privately owned. Yeah. Uh, Harold Mitchell, you know, bought the licence and, um, you know, had us privately owned. It then went back to the ARU, yeah. you know, a couple of years back. And then Andrew Cox has come in, who's um, you know is a New Zealand businessman who's lived in Melbourne for years, and obviously with a passion for rugby, he's taken over the license again. So privately owned again at the moment, and I suppose uh, you know that's been a good thing with everything going on yeah. around the uh, the Sansa decisions.
1: Oh, absolutely, yeah. How did they persuade you to go to a completely new team?
2: Yeah, it was um, you know it was a tough decision. I got to be honest because the. You know, I suppose the key options at that time, I that's sort of whittled down. So either going back to Cardiff, um, you know, to the Blues,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, and I, did, you know, I had a great offer from them. I, you know, pretty much the offer of the captaincy. I'd been captain in Gloucester for a couple of seasons. Yeah. And obviously I'd just got back into the Welsh team, um, for, you know, for the previous Six Nations. So it was a huge character to go home and obviously the family being there and, and, you know, it would have been a fantastic, you know, life in, in a way. But I suppose I'd grown up watching a lot of super rugby and, and for me with the disappointments of the international career, not quite kicking off, you know, either picking up injuries and missing out on the opportunities to play the best teams. You know, it was only South Africa out of the Tri-Nations teams I'd had the chance to play against. Yeah. I just thought this is this is going to be my one chance really to play against the best in the world on their own patch in super rugby and, you know, to be the first guy to go and do it. So. You know, obviously, there, there hadn't been another Welshman to do it. It was a brand new team. There was the chance to create something, you know, in a, in a fantastic sport and city. And I think that just swayed the balance in the end. It was, um, it was special, you know, the chance to to start a new team because obviously Bath and Gloucester are both nearly well, Bath are one hundred and fifty-two years old now.
1: Yeah, that's right. And
2: obviously, yeah, uh, you know, Gloucester coming up to it, you know, in, in seventy-three to eighteen seventy-three. So. To go and create a team with a, a load of brand new mates on the other side of the world in a pretty special city was um, you know a bit of a once-in-a-lifetime chance.
1: See, I can only imagine if I wanted to get you on to the Melbourne Rebels, I'd have to call you and say, Sterling Mortlock signed. And then I'd have to call Sterling hmm. Mortlock and say, Gareth Elf signed. Yeah, I don't know if
2: Sterling would have known who I was at
1: the time, <laughs> to be honest. But, uh, you know, and, and Danny got a fair few of the
2: headlines, but... Uh... Yes, that's yeah, true, that was actually. the amazing thing for Sterling and, and and Rod to be involved with it. You know, Rod had been a successful businessman for about 10 years. It was, you know, probably, was it, eight years since he'd won the Lions series, um, you know, with the Wallabies. No, yeah. sorry, um, longer, 10 years since he'd won that. And so for him to come out of it, it, it did give hell of a lot of credibility and kudos to the team. So, you know, to go and be a part of that was great. And then by the time we actually got down there and, Saw how much you know Harold Mitchell had rolled out the red carpet in Melbourne for us. You know, we were having these huge Weary Dunlop dinners. Um, and Weary Dunlop was a you know, he's an Australian hero, he'd been in the a prisoner of war, I think it was. Oh, uh, okay, in the second world war. And so, we'd have these dinners named after him. He's one of the first Melbourneian you know, rugby players, yeah. And he'd have about a thousand people there packing out, is that right? You know, the Crown Casino, yeah, yeah, he's incredible. Amazing. We'd have about three or four a year every one of them packed with about you know 800 to a thousand people you'd have the prime minister at the time tony abbott would come and speak and you know i suppose the access we had to um the top of town in melbourne and the chance to get out and do different things amongst the community which is massively afl based was was unbelievable
1: did, did you manage to get out much what um, sorry and watch much a, uh, afl yeah we'd go and watch mate and we'd you know it was, it was amazing you'd I'll never forget going and watch Carlton and
2: Richmond, which is one of the sort of local derbies. Hmm. There was a Thursday night game and you've got about 80,000 people at the MCG and just thinking, you know, there are 10 teams within the city and, you know, often they're getting crowds of forty to 50,000 and, you know, the big teams get eighty, ninety thousand 90,000 plus. And you think the only other place that would be anywhere equivalent would be, you know, say the Manchester derby in football yeah. or some of the London derbies in, in Premier football, but...
1: With much the guys were so accessible
2: too. and, you know, down to earth. It was, it was a brilliant place.
1: I was talking to Ben Darwin, um, who I believe was part of the initial setup with the Rebels. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I mean, he, he's a fascinating bloke. And one of the things he alluded to was when you set up the Rebels, um, they had lots, lots of senior players like yourself, like Sterling Mortlock. How difficult was it to kind of put your impression on that team? And did you feel that there's lots of different personalities trying to pull the team in different ways not, not in a bad way but all trying to be leaders at, at the same time i think you always get that
2: you know because yeah, i suppose there's any sort of leadership or any sort of group dynamics you mm. get the you're in the storming phase and, and we'd all been chucked in together some of the guys knew each other from sydney yeah obviously a lot of the international boys had, had known each other through the years but i think that first team we, we had um I think it was 12 players that had captaincy experience, you know, wow. either at super rugby level or, you know, myself at sort of premiership level. And, and so the dynamics were, you know, they were great in one way. You've got so many leaders. Um, but I, I thought it was, it was brilliant in a way because I was expecting, you know, obviously Stirling him as captain, you know, for the first couple of years, but I suppose for me to be given the honor of being the vice captain coming over as a foreigner, was great and i I think that was testament to the fact that although there was that many leaders it was an element of you know meritocracy it wasn't about where you were from or coming across as a foreign player Mm -hmm. and i think to do that with a brand new team was different whereas if you go into a team now you know you're going to have things embedded and you're going to have you know the social side set up there's going to be a few cliques that you you have to break down and all the rest so you know I i think there were some difficulties chucking a load of new personalities into one city and into one group so quickly but i think if anything you know we we did very well with that you know especially in that that first season Mm. um and then obviously managing different things like i say with any team you've got different mentalities different sort of priorities and you know that's the challenge of leadership is getting everyone on the same page and go in the same direction.
1: And how how do they go about integrating you all? I think a little bit yeah, more loads, usual. Loads of booze, mate. That was, that was the key, in it. So, <laughs>
2: that was the way. No, we you know, we had a few, you know, big get togethers. We'd go down to Lawn, which is um, you know, a beautiful place on the Great Ocean Road. Yeah. And we had about three or four days down there together. We'd do some training, come up with, you know, obviously the the team um, priorities and principles. Mm. You know, I guess it was and and, you know, I suppose work out who we wanted to be as a squad and you know i guess around there we'd have a few beers in the evening um and get to know each other so yeah we you know we did a lot in that sense you know in following years we do a couple of army camps and and things like that but um you know ultimately it was it was that first phase of just getting to know each other and and getting on the same page sounds absolutely brilliant you're selling it to me yeah <laughs> yeah well that's it, mate. it it doesn't take much selling honestly you get down to melbourne and uh you know, it's it's one of those amazing places that um, has just got everything going on, but it's got that small town feel. You mm. know, where everyone's got a bit more time for each other, and you know, there seems to be a bit more warmth and and genuinity to people. But you know, and and as a team, because all the guys were from interstate or or international, you know, we relied on each other so heavily. And um, you know, for me and you know, my Mrs Helen, like it was, it was a great experience, great time of our lives
1: it sounds absolutely incredible and talking to you about it the warmth which you speak about melbourne makes me think would you swap your experiences at melbourne and at japan for more appearances for wales or are you quite happy the way that everything worked out
2: yeah i'm, I'm happy you know I, I knew when i left um because like i say it was, it was a fairly clear-cut decision you know if i'd gone back to cardiff i'd have had a leadership role you know if, mm. well I was, I was offered the captaincy to go back to the Blues. And I was back into the Welsh squad, but it wasn't that I disrespected that. I just felt that you know, yeah. by that point I'd actually been in the Welsh squad for what was I when I left seven years. Mm-hmm. You know, so I've got my first cap at, at well, played my first game at twenty. Didn't get my first cap until twenty three then because I'd got injured in that game at twenty and, and missed, you know, two thousand and three World Cup. So I felt it was always that element of there wasn't a lot of continuity while I'd been around the Welsh squad. We'd have a lot of new coaches. I was always playing over the bridge. So yeah. I suppose by the time I'd made my mark on the team, I'd either get injured, in all honesty, or the coach would change. And sometimes they'd come from the regional setup, and then you're fighting again to push your nose in front. And I suppose for me, it was a case of taking control of my own career and and doing things that I wanted out of it. Because I, I spent my whole career, I wanted to be the best player in my position in the world. Mm. And I wanted to play against the best players in my position in the world. And, and for me, that was, you know, all Blacks and, you know, South Africans, likes of Pierre and those guys. And in a sad way, in 2008, I just got the Welsh jersey as number eight, you know, for the second test in South Africa. Mm. And I lasted 20 minutes before I tore my again. Mm. So it was just, you know, a little bit of a feeling of saying, right, I can't really control whether I'm going to be selected the next time these games come around or whether I'm going to be in favor or whether I'm going to be injured. But if I go down and play these guys and I'd played with Greg Somerville and Carlos Spencer, who I
1: wow. you know,
2: loved as a player at Gloucester. Yeah. But even those guys, you know, that was towards probably the end of their career. Whereas I thought your Kieran Reed, your Pierre Species, you know, your Parloos, your Burgers, they're all playing down there right now and I can play against them every week. And if I get the chance to wear a Wales jersey again, I'm going to have absolutely no fear at all about playing the All Blacks, about playing the Wallabies or the Springboks. And, you know, for me, that was was the decision in the end. That was my chance to go and do something for me where I wasn't going to be reliant on, um, you know, I suppose, selection decisions.
1: Uh, Now, I'm going to bring this uh, interview back on track in a second. But I just want to take it off on a quick tangent because you mentioned a name then, uh, Carlos Spencer. How good yep. was he? And not not just in games, but I imagine he was he was amazing just to train with. Mate, he was unbelievable because
2: I think he's one of those guys that, uh, you know, he, he was the reason in a way that you know you, you get out of bed in the morning on a, on a Saturday to watch super yeah. rugby.
1: Hundred uh... <laughs> percent. my that
2: one agrees. Yeah, <laughs> does, you but uh, you know, amazing showman and, and a fantastic player. But I guess from playing alongside him you know, what an athlete, like he was 34, 33, 34 when he turned up at um, Gloucester and still incredible shape, you know, one of the hardest working guys on his his fitness, on his, you know, athleticism. And I suppose I'd always had that mindset in the past that these supremely talented guys, you know, it was was just almost easy for them. They just turn up and they do it. Yeah. Um, But yeah, that um, professionalism was, was incredible. And, yeah, it was you know, it was an honor in a way to to play alongside him. He, he didn't play a huge amount, you know, in, in some ways. You had Nicky Robinson as well and Freddie Burns mm. as tens that season. And um, you know, but trying to try and organise your defence, say in a in a team run against Carlos, who's, <laughs> you know, maybe got a little bit of the hump because he's not starting that weekend and he's running the attack against you.
1: I can imagine. I mean, you'd
2: have you'd have everyone in the right place. You'd have the the defence would be perfect and he'd find a gap, you know, it'd be a bloody, miss two out the back, <laughs> and, uh, you know, someone go through a hole, and you're sort of half pissed off, and half applauding. You know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's unbelievable.
1: Yeah, I mean, you mentioned it before, these guys make it look easy, and I, I kind of put Carlos Spencer, in this category of, too talented, to be any good, and what I mean by that is, some guys I think, are just so talented, they don't need to put, put in the work, but, uh, yeah, clearly not. Yeah, man, I, I I said, i
2: I disagree, you know, on, on the thing of, you know, he played within the team structure, Yeah. you know, enough. You know, I think he was one of those, obviously he's always going to have a reputation as a maverick because what he could do and what he had the confidence to do on the pitch mm. was unbelievable um, and probably uncoachable. You know, I think that scares some coaches because they're worried that what they're telling people to put on the field isn't going to happen, mm. and they're worried that reflects on them. So. I think at times that was a little bit why there was a difficulty to to play Carlos in a team where we had quite a few younger guys within the squad and they probably needed more structure. Yeah. Than it was thought he would get.
1: Do, do th- in
2: his last game for us, he you know he conjured this try in the last five minutes. It was literally his last appearance, and he just controlled the game. And I thought you know it was a great way for him to sign off.
1: Yeah. Do you think that? coaches, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere, and it might be the same in the Southern Hemisphere, I don't know, but Northern Hemisphere almost fear talent because they can't coach it. They can't control what's going to happen next. So you can't build a game plan around Danny Cipriani doing a miss two out the back type thing because you just don't know what's going to happen.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, I I think that is a case, you know, probably more so in the Northern Hemisphere where, you know, it's always been a little bit more attritional. I actually read David Strettle um, did an interview, I think, going into he
1: did actually this week this
2: weekend's game. Yeah, yeah. So I read that talking about seeing coaches are, are viewing players on what they can't do as opposed to what they do offer. Yeah. And I do think that is an issue. And, it, you know, there's a number of factors around that. You know, the coaches' job security, they feel if they're not winning games, then, you know, they're, they're going to be out of a job and I totally understand that. But in the same way, I believe a coach's job is to develop a player, to develop the team.
0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
2: You know, certainly you don't accept guys who are going to go off and do their own thing to the detriment of a team. But if guys have got talents, then it's, it's the coach's responsibility to improve their weaknesses as well, or at least tell them what the view is on their weaknesses and give that guy an opportunity to improve it. But I think too often up here, you know, they just get discarded and that's the end of it. Or the guys who have got that bit of talent are told, don't you dare throw that pass. You know, don't you dare do a Dane Coles and <laughs> yeah. throw a 15-meter pass. You tuck that under your arm and you you take contact. And I think we end up, you know, with guys who are playing at probably 78% of their potential. Talking
1: to you. You're obviously an incredibly rounded guy, very, very knowledgeable on rugby. And I can't help but think some of that must be because you've seen so many different ways to play and experienced so many different rugby cultures. Looking at the Welsh team at the moment and the idea of things like Gatlands Law, and they do it in England too, where you've got to be in England to play for England. Do you think that's a mistake and that more players should be travelling to Southern Hemisphere, to Japan, or even just you know pro-12 players going to the Premiership and vice versa?
2: Yeah, definitely. You know, I think that um, it is difficult for the the international coaches because I think it's not necessarily their agenda they're pushing, but it's a responsibility to the union Mm. to create the best product within the country. So the WIU rule isn't about making the for the Welsh national team. Mm -hmm. You know, it's about trying to get the best product for the regions. But I think in that way, you, you end up threatening people with something that shouldn't be used as a, as a carrot, you know, Completely agree. In international jersey, you mm. earn that by being the best player in your position and nothing else should come into it. No politics, no garbage about where you're playing. Mm. It should be about you're the best in that position. So, you know, you've earned the right for that. And what ends up happening is it's used as a, as a threat. It keeps players in an environment, but then that takes away the responsibility on the regions or on the premiership teams to create the best environment for those players to stay and to improve. You know, and obviously the first thing that's that's thrown out is salary and how much money people are earning in France or going here, there and and everywhere. Mm. But, you know, in my eyes, it's a global game. My life and my friendships and experience have been massively sort of um, helped by having that experience of travelling. You know, my ability to deal now with, obviously, you know, like that's not playing again is helped by the fact that I know there's a big wide world out there and it's not going to be, you know, my view of rugby in the world isn't coloured by, you know, disappointment within, you know, one place. So I think the more well-rounded we can make our players and athletes and, like I say, guys that go and play super rugby, take away that fear factor. You know, maybe we don't end up losing 12 on the bounce to the Wallabies. You know, maybe we learn what we need to do to beat the Kiwis. Maybe we, you know use that experience to come back and and tell our teammates, listen, these guys got two arms, two legs, so (laughs) I'm on a pedestal. But, um, you know, I suppose while there are those differences and discrepancies in, you know, salary or environment or bloody insurance or anything else within these places, I don't think you can hold a gun to people's head and say, well, if you leave, you know, you're going to lose the thing that you value the most because I've never been more patriotic to be honest, JB, then you know, when I've been over the bridge or when I've been down on the other side of the world and I'm getting up at 34 in the morning to watch Six Nations. It's, yeah. You know, it, it makes, makes you realise how much you love your country. But, um, yeah, sometimes it becomes a bargaining tool and I think it's wrong.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think it's, I'll go further. I think it's a little bit unhealthy as well. I mean, there is something very romantic about the hometown boy growing up and playing for his hometown club. But, for instance, if you... Grew up in Swansea, lived in Swansea, played your rugby in Swansea. I'm not for one second saying that that's a bad thing, but maybe there is an advantage of going over to Wasps for a year or going to France for a year. Yeah, the classic one is Stefan Armitage. Who was Stephen Armitage yeah. be- before he went to to Toulon?
2: Exactly. Yeah, and and I think that you know the likes of Stephen, you know Nicky Benden and who, you know, was, was superb for Bath. You know, had a, a good few years playing with Bendy. Yeah, and he was absolutely brilliant. And I think both of those guys. You know, they both won the European Player of the Year while playing in France.
1: Yeah, that's a good but point. yet they couldn't
2: they? get a jersey in the England team, and both of them, to an extent, were forced out of their clubs. You know, obviously with with Bendy, he had a great career with Bath. Mm. The emergence of Anthony Watson meant that he was spending less time playing. He goes across to Clermont and has been outstanding ever since. Yeah, you know, Stefan, by far the best seven, you know, in England for a long time, and his performances, you know, dictated that he won. European player, I think, twice on the bounce, three Heineken Cups, and yet he can't get a jersey, even though when he was at London Irish, he wasn't on the radar,
1: because apparently he wasn't playing
2: well enough. And, you know, I think that um, it's wrong. You know, it's it's a bit probably controversial, but, you know, when you look at it, all we've got as players, and I think, you know, now it's, I think it's great that they've now changed the residency role, and they're going to change it. Do you think that's great, though? Yeah, because I think three years isn't long enough. Like I loved Australia yeah, and you know, I loved the players I played alongside and I, I respected, you know, the opportunity to play in the country and the supporters and, and everything else. But I, it didn't make me Australian. You know, I was always a Welshman in mm. Australia and I couldn't have represented the Wallabies with a passion that a, a young guy who's grown up and lived his life in Sydney and played all his rugby. I wouldn't have wanted to, you know, yeah. my only view was ever to represent in Wales and making them a better team when I had the chance to play. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this whole thing about I want to play at the top level and I want to play international rugby. And, you know, I've got some great mates who have, have done it, played for other countries, and I love them to bits. But, you know, certainly not for me. You know, your country is your country, and, and that's that.
1: Yeah, see, that, that's an interesting one. I, I kind of have some sympathy with that position, you know, tier one to tier to tier one countries. It's a very short career rugby, and I look at the guys who are playing now and say, say some of the guys who like i'm going to give you an example like a, like a rocker Dagoonie. i just mm-hmm. don't see why he should finish his career half a million pound shorts compared to someone who isn't as good as him just because the residency rule changed i mean it won't affect him per se but that's just just an example uh, particularly if you play I, I think, Tier Two.
2: yeah yeah well sorry J someone yeah. like rocker Goone, man, he's he's represented <laughs> this country and he, he could have played for i suppose any of the home nations because he's represented the British Army, yeah, yeah, on the bigger stage, mate. So you know, I, I'm not, I'm not talking about no, guys no, like him. You know, with full respect for.
1: No, no, that's a that's a bad example. But I'm guess I, I'm meaning like some someone who played in I don't know Namibia or Namibia or somewhere like that com, comes over, does three years. As far as Anderson, they they should be allowed to play because they can't earn that money money elsewhere, and it's a very shallow view. But I just can't square the circle of giving away so much income at the end of a career. But,
2: yeah I, I understand what you're saying mate, but you know I never ever played international rugby to earn money yeah. and I think that's that's the difference I think if the if the unions and I think, I'm sure a lot of people feel the same you know if the unions made it free for people to come and watch the boys would be happy to go without the money you know obviously the fact that you fill the you know you fill Twickenham or you fill you know the principality stadium and it's it's bringing in 5 million pound or however much it is the players are going to want that cut because people are coming to see them play they're risking their, their bodies and futures and health mm. on performing. So I think it's right that there is that, you know, money paid across. But then in the same way, if that money was was taken out of the picture and, you know, obviously it's a fantastic living nowadays in professional rugby, but, you know, I, I can't imagine anyone who grew up running around the garden saying, I'm going to earn 20 grand now to go play at Twickenham. It was, you know... I want to be Scott Cornell running around the garden, running over the top of people at junior school because I want to play for Wales, and that's what I mean. It's, it needs to be sort of taken back to that level, you know, a, a little bit. Yeah. Some of the guys that get brought up around this argument are guys who, you know, I, I, again like Rock de and that, you know, have, have got full rights to be playing for, you know, the country they're at. You know, obviously the likes of Talupe, uh, you know, he came over as a as a really young guy, you know, mm. and his dad was a Tongan international you know, playing in Welsh rugby, but Tulupe grew up as a Welsh player, you know, his whole schooling, his whole, you know, rugby education is as a Welshman, and I think that is very different to the likes of, you the
1: Denny know, again, a, a or Tio,
2: who, yeah. although I think Tio's no, mother, t- is, t- mother is. Tio's you mother know, is English, but yeah, yeah, so I'll give you an example,
1: think, yeah. Denny Solomona is the one that's going to get a bit of a stick in the next mm-hmm. few weeks, but again, where else is he going to earn that kind of money? I think the risks that they take, it's perfectly justified.
2: Yeah, but I, I think you earn your money with your club. Mm. You know, and that's what I mean. You if you look at the again, you know, it'd be a bit controversial. I I find it hypocritical in that you can say, okay, Denny Solomon is more worthy of wearing an England jersey because he's playing in England than oh. Stefan Armitage was as an Englishman who, you know, spent his whole career and his whole life wanting to play for England, Completely but who's had that. to go to Toulon to make a a living and, and to play for a, a Heineken Cup winning team and to get the opportunities his, his talent deserved. So why is he more worthy of an opportunity than than Solomona?
1: Yeah, I completely agree with that. Yeah, It also means that the England shirt is dangled to foreign players as a way to attract people to the premiership and I'm not particularly comfortable with that either.
2: Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. That's what I mean. I think, you know, it's, it's up to the, the clubs and the regions and everyone else to create the best environment. Um you know, there was a little quote, and I'll probably get it wrong, but you know, I read something about Branson saying, you know, you, you train people to give them the talent that they can leave, mm. but you create the best environment so they don't. Yeah, and you know, in my view, if that was the mentality behind Premiership Rugby, regional rugby, I think Premiership Rugby is certainly getting its act together, and that is stemming the flow. You obviously you've seen the likes of Picamoles coming across mm. from France to to play at Northampton, and you know, they're doing a great job with that, but I think there are very few teams that are investing in their culture. You know, they'll invest in players. But as much as, you know, Saracens had the Saffirson's tag for a while, and, <laughs> yeah. you know, they, they got a hell of a lot of stick because they got rid of a lot of long-term players there, you know, back when uh, Edward Griffiths went in and um, uh, Brendan Venter. But they've created this Wolfpack mentality. And now you look at the young guys that have come through the system, you know, in Farrells, you're your Cruz. The number of guys they've brought in from Division One rugby,
1: yeah, it's huge, and isn't it?
2: Created this culture, you know. It's no surprise because they're spending money on the guys having experiences together. Whether it be going to Oktoberfest, whether it be going to Barcelona after a you know a big win out in Munster, it's getting guys willing to spend time with each other away from the training pitch, and that is where you get your bonds. You know, that's worth probably fifty grand on a contract talk because you don't want to leave your best mates to go and play at a different club you want to stay you get off the floor in the 78th minute to make that tackle because you're playing with your brothers you know it's uh, it's a mentality that's getting lost in in pro rugby i think
1: i was quite harsh on the on the premiership then i probably didn't mean to be quite so harsh because i think as you alluded to before that the premiership have, re- have really got its act together i think the salary cap system works well i think as in terms of a weekly competition, a domestic competition, I don't think there is one better. But yeah, it's interesting that you point out about the, the culture thing. And it also ties into something that Ben Darwin said a few weeks ago, which is the the best teams have the most contractual stability. So yeah, it's yeah. Um, it's quite an interesting one. Where do you see the Welsh regions in comparison to what you see in the Premiership? <laughs> I'll
2: be fairly honest, mate, throughout. So I'll carry on. You know, I think they're a, <laughs> a mile behind at the moment. Um you know, in, in many ways. And, you know, I think there's some good people who are hopefully going to do something about that in Gareth Davis and, uh, you know, Martin Phillips. He's got a, you know, HR background. And yeah, again, I, I think it's about creating an environment because there's certainly the talent here. But, you know, for me, there's... It, it's so simplistic sometimes when guys leave Welsh Rugby. You know, you look at the likes of Liam Williams, who's going to go to Saracens this year. And, you know, he's, he's going to join a team that's just won the double and potentially going to win the double again this season. And yet people are saying, oh, he's going for the money. It you know, mean he might be going for the
1: New York trip. Team.
2: Well, that's the, thing. he's leaving to sort of go and obviously I'd imagine, you know, obviously he's got, um, you know, family done his, his girlfriend lives in London as well. So there's another tie. Yeah. But it's also the fact that of, of going to an environment that's, that's successful and, you know, as, as good a job as Wayne Pivac is doing at the Scarlets, Saracens are going to take some catching, you know, over the next few years. So, either Liam's going to spend his career sort of chasing the team or he can go to a team where he's got that opportunity to be a part of it now. Um, you know, and, and I'm sure the other factors around it in terms of the environment, training environment, everything that you need to be a better player is going to be better. You know, at uh, Saracens. And that's no real disrespect to Scarlet because I don't know their system so well. But yeah. I do know, you know, from what I've seen from coming back to, to whilst rugby and a... It's genuinely not sour grapes. It's mm. um, it's been some of the worst that I've seen, you know, well, throughout it, my whole sort
1: of uh, career. I don't know what it is about Welsh rugby. I often get in trouble when I talk about Welsh rugby because, quite frankly, I've almost stopped covering it. And the the reason why it just feels so so political. And although the squads are trying trying the hardest to win, the politics around it undoubtedly rubs off on the teams. I mean, I think is it this week or next week the Blues going to sorry, the Cardiff Blues are going to change the Blues. You could have thought the world is ending.
2: Yeah, you know, and, and I guess it is tough. I think, I think with the Blues, um, you know, it, it, their situation is is very difficult because you've got a massive amount of talent up in the, you know, in the valleys and up in the Rhondda, mm. Pontypris. And the fact is, with Cardiff in the title, you're not going to attract, you know, those those supporters. Yeah, and and again, that's that's their right. You know, they've they've grown up supporting teams that through no fault of their own or their decision is, is, are now no longer, you know, the top professional setup. So you do have to engender support from them and you do, if you want to be considered, you know, a true region, you do have to reach out and make sacrifices to do that. Mm. But I think the blue situation is a little bit different in that, you know, Pontypreet and Bridgend came under the Celtic Warriors banner initially. Yeah. So now that got dissolved again. There was no fault of the blues from what I know you know it' was a decision that was made for you know some of what's going on in Australia in terms of apparently it makes the most business sense and and all the rest with no real thought to you know the the emotional side of it you know it's a business decision yeah but that means then the blues are expected to drop everything they've been doing for the first few years of regional rugby and welcome in someone else I think the Ospreys have done it very well in terms of incorporating Bridgend. Into the region, yeah, and they've had you know great success from that. You know the likes of you, you know Rhys Webb and you know the Bridgend boys, Haberfield, and those guys that have come through from Bridgend. There's a huge amount to gain from it, but I think it is also a difficult decision because, as a capital club, you know Cardiff have, have always been one of the biggest names in world rugby. You know, as have you know the Scarlets, as have I suppose Swansea and Neath. But you know, in in all fairness to the Ospreys, I do believe they've been you know the one team that has. Really embraced regional rugby.
1: Yeah, I think I'd agree and, with that.
2: And, you know, then they've they've reaped the benefits of it because look at their catchment area for talent. You go Swansea, Neath, Aberavon, Bridgend. You know, up into the Swansea Valley. You know, they it's huge, and, and the, the players you get coming through because of that, fantastic. I think if the Blues are going to sort of bring Pontypridd and the Ronda, you know, back into the system, then they they have to make a sacrifice. But I I do understand why they're a bit grudging because. Um, You know, it wasn't how it was set up in the first place.
1: Yeah, now, you can probably answer this question, because it's one of these rugby myths. I don't even know if it exists or not. Is it true that Gloucester have a fairly sizable following from (laughs) Poncepreth?
2: I'm not too sure, to be honest. Is that actually a thing? I think you get all sorts in the shed, to be honest, (laughs) because it's a bloody great place to be. So I wouldn't be surprised, you know, just in terms of, I suppose when people feel they've had something taken away from him and they, you know, it's not uh, the same, you, you're going to go to somewhere like-minded and I'd imagine, you know, that, that passion for rugby and, and the way they're that, you know, that knowledge for it, mm-hmm. you know, probably find a great home in the shed and in, uh, you know, teagues over the road. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. be surprised.
1: Well, okay. I've, 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 I've just got one last uh, small set of questions to ask you. I've always wanted to kind of uh, clar- clarify this, but when commentators talk about players, there's usually some kind of, you know, um, fact, that go, fact or catchphrase that, that goes along. So I'll give you an example. Um, Racing Metro aren't called Racing Metro anymore. They're called Dan Carter's Racing Metro. The, now, yeah, I, yeah. Seem, I seem to remember with you, it was always Gareth Delve, Dad was Mr. Wales. So two things. How strong are you? And was your dad Mr. Wales? Have I got that wrong? No, no, yeah, dad was dad was Mr. Wales. He won it in, I think it was
2: 1983. Amazing. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it was just, you know, it was pretty incredible as a youngster to have, uh, you know, the old "my dad's bigger than your dad" was, um, <laughs> you know, pretty easy, easy scrap at that time. And, uh, you know, he, he had a massive part to play with his training knowledge in, I suppose, my training as as a younger guy. But, um, wow. You know, I think the other the other one about me being super strong, yeah, that's definitely. Uh, uh, a load of crap nowadays, you know, so. just plodding on, really, and yeah.
1: So, I mean, there, there, there is always a time, isn't there, in, in a man's life when you think, yeah, I'm probably stronger than the old man now. Have you actually come to that time?
2: Uh, I think so now, yeah. Dad, <laughs> dad, he, he still trains, and he, you know, still gets back into it, but I think it's, uh, it's getting a bit rarer now, so I think, yeah, probably a bit stronger, but he's still, you know... Still the best coach I've had, so, you he know, st- he knew me. Yeah. Well, I think the thing with Dad, it was, it was great, and I'll give you a bit of an insight sort of into, into growing up with him. Yeah, please. Anything to do with weights, you know, I'd, I'd do it because I knew he knew his stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he met Arnold. He did three or four Mr. Universe competitions. So he was, you know, in, obviously an amateur situation, but he was, you know, right at the top of his game. So anything to do with weights, I'd do. There was one time we'd go and do some running, and he'd be making, I'd go down to Tesco, be, oh, sidestep through all those bollards over there and he <laughs> so just feel like a bit of an empty, you know, go and do that, come back, you know. And there was one time me and my brother went and did some training and at uh, Mendi Leisure Centre, they've got this cycle track and it's about 800 metres round. He's hmm. like, right, me and my brother start on different sides and chase each other until you catch the other one. Uh, brilliant. Like, <laughs> nah, that's the, that's the last straw, you know, sort of he knew bugger all about running but anything to do with weights was uh, was great
1: so um i i've also read that your dad was propping in rugby too how mm. how was it that you found your passion in rugby rather than lifting weights um whew. yeah i don't think it was
2: that unusual really because you know dad loved rugby yeah um, he played a part of a, a, a great team you know with cardiff schools and they won the jewish shield he played with terry holmes and ian eidman and you know, some guys that went on and, and obviously Terry had a amazing career with Wales and British Lions. You know, the other guys went on to be international. So he got sort of passed over. I think it was around the, you know, the Wales youth age. And, you know, one of those usual stories of, you know, you don't make the trial or you don't get through. And I think his frustration led him into doing more training. And I think, you know, for dad, he was just more of an individual sport mm. kind of guy. But, um, You know, he had a massive passion for for rugby, and I think my initial passion was for football. You know, I loved it, it, lived it, breathed it. Yeah, I wanted to be Ian Rush, so from probably the age of four, I was out in the front, you know, in the street, Mm. kicking the ball against the wall, you know, every night, you know, for hours on end. But um, I had a couple of games of rugby then, and I think the football helped, because I had a bit more ability to pick my head up and, you know, could run and, and, and beat people, that type of thing. And then, it, you know, it also emerged, you know, dad still loved the rugby. I, You know, we found that rugby was more sociable. And, you know, I found a great home down at Romney Rugby Club in those early years. And, and that's where it took off. But I think for dad, he did miss that team side of it. So when I had the opportunity, you know, he was very supportive of me being part of that team. And, you know, him and my mum obviously made sacrifices for mm-hmm. me to get to all the training. Mm-hmm. But um, I was just never that individually minded, you know, like I was saying at the beginning, you know, my love for the game has always been, you know, I suppose that loyalty to my teammates and and to my club has been about um, sort of leaving everything out there for them. So, you know, I think I'd have found it hard to uh, make the sacrifices that, you know, the bodybuilders or the individual sports do because, um, you know, I've always found it easier, I suppose, to, to fight for my mates.
1: Excellent. Gareth, I feel like I could talk to you for absolutely hours, but instead I'm going to let you go because I'm guessing you're going to be watching the Gloucester match. Um well, immediately after this actually.
2: Yeah, I shoot down and watch that. Um you know, one of my mates is the the Stade Francais coach as well, so it's uh, Oh, who's that? Yeah. Uh Greg Cooper.
1: Oh, so, okay. Talking
2: to Coops yeah the last couple of days, so but uh yeah, I think the Gloucester bonds a bit too strong mate to uh, wish him too well. Yeah, so it should be a great game. Uh
1: a quick a quick prediction for that?
2: Um, oh, it's hard to call, mate. I think uh, you know, I'm hoping Gloucester Gloucester sneak it by a couple.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm going to go with Gloucester, but only just. Where can we find you on social media stuff, stuff like that? Yeah,
2: mate. Also, I'm on Twitter as uh, at Delve, and you know I've been lucky enough and doing quite a bit at the moment with uh, BBC Wales on the on the radio and and TV. So Scrum Five. So hopefully, I'll be spouting my opinions elsewhere for a, a little bit longer.
1: Well, let's absolutely hope so.
0: Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
1: And you're welcome back on the podcast whenever you want.
2: Ah uh, brilliant. Thanks JB.